Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 53. We are going to be taking on a slightly more modern case. We're back in the United States in the 1940s, and today's episode was actually a listener suggestion. So this is a thank you and a shout out to Stacy, who emailed us quite a while ago with this recommendation. Today's episode is on the Texarkana Moonlight Murders and the Phantom Killer. In Texarkana in 1946, four heinous crimes took place in the span of less than three months. The fourth incident involved the shooting of a middle-aged couple in their rural farmhouse on the Arkansas side of town. The other three involved violent attacks on young people parked in Lover's Lanes on the Texas side. Five people would be shot dead. Three would suffer serious injuries by the time the frenzy ended. Police would receive very little information from the distraught survivors. And fear would end up shutting down the town. The killer? Well, he's never caught. But before we dive into the details, Texarkana gets its name since it's a town that's on the border between Texas and Arkansas. Due to the town's extensive use as a hub for the smuggling of booze during the Prohibition era, the town was also known locally as Little Chicago. Like many idyllic towns in the post-World War II era, it was a close-knit community, with residents frequently leaving their doors and windows unlocked. In 1946, Texarkana's population would have been around 44,000. After enduring the unimaginable horrors of war, this town finally felt safe but that illusion would be shattered in the winter of 1946. At 11.45 p.m. on February 22, 1946, the killer who would eventually become known as the Phantom Killer began his murderous crime spree. After going to the movies, Jim Hollis, 25, and his date, Mary Jean Larry, 19, parked their car on a remote road that was referred to as Lover's Lane in the community. A man wearing a white cloth mask with eye holes cut out approached their car, shining a flashlight through the window on the driver's side of the vehicle. Jim would say to the man that he had the wrong car. The masked man replied, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. He would then yell at the two to exit the vehicle and told Jim to take off your goddamn britches. He then used his pistol to strike Jim in the head twice. And when Jim's skull broke, Mary believed her lover had been shot. That's how loud it was, as she would later tell authorities. Mary then showed the gunman Jimmy's wallet, begging him to take it, since she assumed they were being robbed. For her trouble, she was then hit with a blunt object, which knocked her right to the ground. The man told her to stand up and run. Mary followed his instructions. She noticed a parked car along the road, and when she went to look at the car, she saw it was empty. Mary never considered the possibility that her very attacker might have owned the car. At this point, he caught up with her and asked her why she was running, which I imagine would have been incredibly confusing to Mary. The man appeared to become enraged when Mary responded that he told her to run. He called her a liar and knocked her down. He then used the barrel of his revolver to sexually assault Mary. During her assault, Mary said, go ahead and kill me. And for some reason, this made her attacker flee, saving her life. 
She managed to get up and run to a neighboring home, startling the occupants, who then dialed the police. As all of this was going on, Jim came to and managed to stop a passing car, who alerted police as well. After their attacks, Mary and Jim characterized their attacker differently, with Mary saying he was a light-skinned African-American and Jim saying he was a tanned white man, although they both estimated their attacker's height to be around six feet tall. The authorities thought Mary was lying and that she might have known her attacker, but said he was black to hide the identity of the mystery man because the contradicting accounts seemed odd given how savage the attack was. They may have thought she was humiliated by the sexual assault, or they didn't believe her account because she was simply a woman. The reality was that both Mary and Jim had head injuries and were traumatized. In light of this, it's simple to understand how, if questioned later, they may have remembered things differently. Mary would end up relocating to Oklahoma, since being close to where the attack took place and the police's treatment of her was simply too traumatizing. According to Geringer for Crime Library, the strange assault on Jim Hollis and Mary Jean Larry had made it to the newspapers, but it ended up being written off as an isolated incident. A police search had turned up no evidence of the offender, and many in the community felt the hooded mystery man had long since left town on a boxcar headed elsewhere. Even though the Lover's Lane attack was terrifying, Texarkana didn't yet have cause for its concern overall. On March 24th, only one month later, a driver saw a car with two people parked inside on a lover's lane close to U.S. Highway 67 West. The driver assumed the couple had spent the night there. When the passerby approached the car, he realized they weren't asleep. They were dead. Richard was found with his pockets inside, his head resting on his crossed hands, between the front seats when the police arrived. Polly Ann Moore, 17, was discovered face down in the back seat. Drag marks and bloodstains indicated that Polly Ann had been killed outside the car. It also looked as though she had been raped. It was difficult to locate footprints and fingerprints because they had been washed away throughout the night by a strong downpour. Richard, it was determined, had died inside the vehicle. Both of the pair had been shot in the back of the head and were completely clothed. A blanket-wrapped 32 cartridge round was discovered at the location. One theory was that it originated from a Colt firearm. From the very beginning, police are at a loss. Members of the Texas Department of Public Safety, the city police departments in Texas and Arkansas, Miller County, and the neighboring Cass County law enforcement agencies joined the Bowie County Patrol in their investigation. Eventually, the FBI was even called in, but everyone came up empty. There was no apparent reason for their deaths. Neither Richard nor Pollyann had any known rivals. Their last recorded sighting was at a cafe on West 7th Street around 10 o'clock that evening, where they were having a quiet meal with Richard's sister, Eleanor. Investigators would interview between 50 and 60 witnesses by March 27, 1946, and a $500 reward was posted by police on March 30th, only a few days later. They hoped that the reward would serve as sufficient incentive for community members to come forward with information that would aid in the killer's identification. Instead, it generated hundreds of false leads. Again, according to Geringer for Crime Library, 
Today's Gazette offers an insightful analysis of 1940s social attitudes. This pertains to the way in which law enforcement handled and the public's reaction to offenses involving sexual deviance or rape. In 1946, the public press would ignore any such behavior, but today it would be front-page news. Even though Pollyann's body bore obvious evidence of rape, and even though the perpetrator had sexually assaulted Mary Jean with a pistol barrel before her escape, the newspapers, including the Gazette, stayed silent about that specific feature of both crimes. The suggestion of rape was made in vague terms, like criminal assault, which might refer to a variety of offenses. Pollyann's body wasn't even autopsied, and authorities refrained from publicly expressing their suspicions regarding the rape. It was in an era prior to DNA testing, when offenders were more accurately identified by physical attributes than by science. The prevalence of rape was also significantly lower than it would be now. The reason the killer remained elusive for so long could have been due to the absence of technology and the hush-hush standards of the day. Pollyann had been assaulted, and Mary Jean had been violated in a perverse way, but at the time, no one had even connected the two incidents. What was obvious, even if they hadn't connected the two attacks yet, is that this murderer was escalating. Because three weeks later on April 14, 1946, early in the morning, Paul Martin, 17, had picked up his girlfriend, Betty Jo Booker, 15, from the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club, where she had been performing as part of that evening's musical entertainment. When her daughter, Betty Jo, failed to come home to return her saxophone before going out with her boyfriend, her mother became worried. No one had seen the pair when her mother began calling their friends. Now Paul's body would be found shortly after police were notified, during which time a search had started. He had been shot four times, one into his nose, one into his right hand, one into the back of his neck, and one shot through his ribcage. Betty Jo would be found nearly two miles away from her boyfriend. She had two gunshot wounds, one in her chest and one in her face, when she was discovered hidden behind a tree. A further additional three miles from Betty Jo's body, Paul's car would be discovered with the keys still in the ignition. Who was killed first was a mystery to police, but a bullet casing was discovered, similar to the last murder, from a 32 Colt automatic pistol. A $1,700 reward fund had been established in hopes of obtaining information that would help identify the killer of Richard, Pollyann, Betty Jo, and Paul. Realizing it was hiding a killer who appeared to be growing bolder by the minute, Texarkana started to panic. Police would finally begin to piece together for the first time that it was the same hooded vagrant behind this string of assaults and murders. Once more, sadly, officials had not discovered any recognizable fingerprints. Nonetheless, the killer's modus operandi was clear, targeting young couples in isolated locations. The Texarkana Daily News printed the following title on on April 16, 1946. Phantom Killer Eludes Officers as Investigation of Slaying Pressed. The Texarkana Gazette published an article titled, Phantom Slayer Still at Large as Probe Continues, One Day Later. The killer would from that point on be known as the Phantom. And more than 300 suspects would be taken in for interrogation. They included people who'd been seen wandering dark areas at night, 
those who had been labeled as odd by their neighbors, hermits, loners, and anyone with a past criminal record. All were interrogated thoroughly, but none were taken into custody. Virgil Starks, a farmer, was reading a newspaper in his living room recliner at approximately 9 o'clock on May 3rd. His wife, Katie, sat up in bed sharply after hearing glass smashing. She would discover her husband bleeding heavily and slumped over in his recliner. He had been shot twice in the head from outside their window. Katie would quickly be shot twice in her head before she could even respond. But amazingly, she survived. She heard the assailant trying to break through a kitchen window at the back of the house as she crawled across the floor. Wearing only her nightgown, Katie would run out the front door and over to a neighbor's house, where police were called. Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis would question Katie at the hospital, but she was hardly able to provide him with any information. All of the blood from the gunshots would render her visionless, and she was only able to characterize the man who had shot her as tall. But three clues would be discovered by detectives as they examined the scene. The first was that the attacker's bullets were 22 caliber. A flashlight was discovered in the hedge beneath the window where the murderer fired his weapon. And finally, bloody prints were discovered throughout the house, including smudged fingerprints and shoe prints on the kitchen floor. Bloodhounds were sent to the residence early the next morning in an attempt to track down the murderer. They would discover two tracks that led to the freeway before they lost the scent. Twelve people would be taken into custody to be questioned, but again, no one was ever arrested. The FBI sent the flashlight to Washington for additional investigation, but that would turn out to be a dead end. The community as a whole agreed that the Phantom was responsible for the attack on the Stark family, despite the disparity in the attacker's methodology and the bullet type that was used. Following the assault on the Stark family, a $7,025 reward fund was available for information that would help identify and capture the elusive killer. Despite combined efforts of Texas, Arkansas, county, city, and federal officers, no trace of the phantom killer has been found as of late tonight, the Texarkana Gazette reported on May 13th. According to officers, nothing new happened. One officer put it this way, We've been working in circles all week. But after realizing that the attacks occurred every three weeks, Texas Ranger Manuel Gonzalez, the primary investigator, made an attempt to set a trap for the Phantom Killer. Two undercover cops using mannequins would pretend to be teens parked in a lover's lane. Unfortunately for the police, the Phantom would never attack again. Texarkana locals started purchasing firearms, security dogs, and window blinds. People for the first time began locking their doors, and curfews were established. Although the murderer remained unidentified, two people were thought to be connected to the crime. The first potential phantom was H.B. Tennyson, 18, and he would die by suicide in 1948. In his suicide letter, he would admit to killing Paul, Betty Joe, and Virgil, He did play in the same school band as Betty Jo, but the two weren't close, and H.B.'s friends would tell the police he couldn't have killed anyone. When they heard about Paul and Betty Jo's murderers on the news, they were at home playing cards. Yoel Swinney, 29, a well-known car thief, was the second potential phantom. Police determined that a car was reported stolen the night of each attack, 
that would be later found abandoned. Following police's arrest of Sweeney's wife, who was operating a stolen car, the couple were taken into custody. Sweeney's wife admitted that her husband was the killer, but each time she was questioned, she gave a different account of what happened. And apart from her confession, there was no concrete evidence connecting Sweeney to the Moonlight murders. His wife is eventually found to be an untrustworthy witness and is unable to testify against her husband in court. Due to his repeated Grand Theft Auto convictions, he eventually receives a prison sentence. Sweeney would die in prison in 1994, nearly 50 years after the Moonlight murders. The fact that Sweeney and his wife were married just days before they were detained raised suspicions in the eyes of many. Did Sweeney use his marriage as a means of keeping quiet the one person who could put him in the electric chair? The investigation would proceed on, but as the months passed with no leads, the town became complacent. Texas Rangers returned home, and the curfew was loosened by the authorities. For many law enforcement officials, their man was in prison, but many others believed that the Phantom was still out there. As time passed, stories about the Phantom evolved from cautionary tales to mythology. The Texarkana killings, which were afterwards dubbed the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, are thought to have served as the inspiration for the urban legend known as Hookman, which claims that a man with a hook for a hand targets young couples parked along Lover's Lane. The murder investigation also loosely served as the basis for the movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Morbidly for years, Texarkana would show this movie in October near Halloween as part of their Movies in the Park event. But ultimately, the Phantom Killer has never been officially named. Was it Sweeney who passed away in jail? Or was it someone completely different who got away with murder? At the end of the day, we're still not 100% sure who the Phantom Killer really was. And with that, we've come to the end of another episode of Historical True Crime. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming case, you can reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com or on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.